essential form of thinking. It changes the way we view the world and the way we view our own homes. That's why we're here. We're here to investigate the stories in our own backyards. To talk to the people who live here. And work here, volunteer here, love here, restore here. Also that we can travel back outside that place and see it from a different perspective. I'm Abby Newhouse. And I'm Melissa Wade. And we're here. To think and investigate and share stories about the varied places throughout our world, up close and from a distance. In this episode, we visit the Cave of Kelpius near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And we talk cults, community, and loneliness. Melissa, would you call yourself a lonely person right now? That's a, that's a um, very weighty label. Um, I felt lonely and I get lonely and I work from home. So I, I often am by myself and I am alone. But I think ironically, the deepest loneliness that I felt is often not when I'm alone. It's often when I have other people around. I'm thinking specifically of when I was in the MFA program, there was a season during the COVID-19 pandemic when we were all online. And I don't know if it was the transition. I don't know if it was, it was just like the the complete change because I went from seeing people every day to not, but it caused like this rift. um, And I felt kind of lonely. I felt, and I couldn't describe it. I couldn't describe it because I have a partner who lives in my house and I see him every day. So to say I'm lonely felt kind of like a jab to him. Like he wasn't doing a good job. How about you? Are you a lonely person? I like, I've had friends actually like describe me as the world's last extrovert, um, which is obviously not true, but I I don't know. I think I tend to get lonely maybe faster than others do. I am working at a place where I go into the office two times a week and it's always nice to be surrounded by people. But at the same time, we're all kind of like hunkered down in our own little areas trying to get some editing done. So even though we're around people, we're not really with them, if that makes sense. But even so, the day after those two days of working, when I'm at home, I feel like I need to just stay home all day. Like I'm like ready to just be alone. But then I've noticed it's like this pattern. The the next day after I'm able to be alone, I'm like immediately like, I need people again. I need people. I've got to plan something. I need to like reach out to friends. Like what's everybody up to tonight? Like (laughs) what are we going to do? For some reason, I do have this kind of tendency to feel lonely when I'm by myself, which is interesting opposite to you who's lonely around other people so but I know that feeling that you're talking about and I but I think it happens with me if I've seen too many people in a row like this weekend we saw friends Friday Saturday and Sunday and they're all for like good long chunks of time and at the end I just find myself like not being able to put together words and sentences and it's like you just feel something in your brain that's like you need to be alone and process things for a second. I don't know. I think there is like a difference between being alone and loneliness for sure. Um, I think that loneliness for me, I sit it right next to the shelf 
like on the on the shelf of emotions I sit it right next to shame like I think that to feel deep loneliness is often to feel like you have been isolated that you have been pushed to the side that for some reason you don't fit in or that everyone else is doing something fun and they're all in groups and they all love each other and they're a sitcom and you're not but the cure for that seems to be what we just did like me saying, yeah, I feel lonely. And then you saying, uh, yeah, I feel lonely. And yet we're friends and <laughs> we we know we have each other, but that's not the point. The point is, is that being a human can be lonely. It's just that no one else sees your thoughts. No one else can just jump in and be like, I get you. You have to explain it. You have to be social. You have to use words. You have to communicate. You have to put in so much effort. And so being alone repairs me from all that social effort. Mm, I get you. Yeah, it's like that fear of missing out mixed with like comparing yourself to the other people around you it makes you feel lonely in who you are as a person. You're like, am I misunderstood? <laughs> Which again is why I think we lean towards finding different groups that that help us find that identity a little bit more. It depends on like what type of group you're finding to like help that loneliness because it can go from something like a writing group, like you're kind of talking about with your masters of fine arts and fiction, right? You like missed that writing group of people that you you could just go to at all times who understand your story, like literally can give you notes, feedback, and you just kind of like commiserate on writing, like all these things that you know people understand. But then, you know, on the other end of like, what groups can do for you is like an understanding that kind of pushes you into a box. And there's kind of just that interesting fine line in humanity, I think, like being able to respect what other people are doing, which I think we find a lot in writing because everybody's ideas are so completely different from one another about what they want to put out into the world. But if you're in a group like, I don't know, some sort of gym or something where like the goal is to like have this body and and do this workout and it's like if you don't do it you don't measure up to the group even though you're like in the group and we ebb and flow even within writing you can feel that still kind of loneliness like you were talking about maybe somebody's doing what you want to do but better or whatever there's always that 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 makes you maybe go from feeling like you have a community to feeling lonely within it and I think that ties into like what you've been talking about with cults. Like I find cults to be an insult to intelligence because the worst cults are gonna turn you into lemmings. They're gonna make you follow without question. There's this idea that you you want to get love, you want to get acceptance, like you were saying, like you've talked about. And to do that, you have to follow the steps, whether that's laughing along at the right moments, whether that's, you know, just doing something because that's how we do it. And that turns so many people into just followers. And that's the scary thing about a cult is that people lose their identity within it. And it doesn't become community. It becomes fear and control and I don't know, like a group all moving together, like a school of fish without a brain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and a couple of different things that I've read about cults, it's like there's people inside the cult and they feel that something is off and they know it, you know, they, they understand within themselves, within their true identity, that something is not true to them. But 
the cults are so good at keeping you in because of these things that we've been talking about. This like language of belonging, this feeling of belonging, these people that you look up to really respect and really want to be like, that is a big part of it. So those things kind of keep you in, even though something inside your, your mind is saying no. There's all these little tiny things that just help you stay in. And I feel like sometimes they're not tiny. Like I like how you have included MLMs because I think of the documentary about LuLaRoe and how they were taking those salespeople to the Bahamas and they were taking them on cruises and they were giving them Katy Perry concerts. And it was all this idea of if you follow the rules, if you play the game and you get really good at it, then you will be rewarded and you'll be on the top tier and everyone will look to you as someone that they should look up to. And even though that's just selling leggings, it fits what we think of as those scary cults where people lose themselves to a charismatic front runner. Yeah. And in Amanda Montel's book, Cultish, the one that I talk about in my section, she kind of comes to this conclusion that, you know, people do find this community and all these different cultish places like MLMs, right? People do find good friends and like good community there. How those things end is not always a good thing. But, um, you know, there is a moment where this feels like it's something good, obviously, or else you wouldn't stay. But so she talks about like that feeling and then also says like, instead of dedicating your whole life to this one organization, Like, just take bits and pieces of what you like about all these different places that help feed who you are as a person without anybody trying to control you, telling you what to do with your body or your money. Like, those should be red flags that that's not the community for you. Right. Maybe that's, like, advice you would give yourself when you were a teenager, that you don't need to sit in one click and be against all the other cliques, but you can have multiple friend groups, your soccer friends, your band friends, your lunch table friends, your art class friends, and that diversity, that ability to be socially flexible is going to enrich your life rather than be dedicated to the ups and downs of just one. Yeah, definitely. Having community is great and finding that in a healthy way is very important for humans. Um, whether that be, you know, me who kind of needs it more often than Melissa does, who only needs it like once or twice a week. I don't know. Does that sound true to you? Yeah, it sounds like it's a vitamin or something that I have to take. <laughs> Eat fish once or twice a week for those omega-3 vitamins. See friends once or twice a week for those social engaged vitamins. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like that we have to be sure that we're staying in this middle ground of like loneliness and like controlling communities. Yeah. That's kind of what we explore today. We're talking cults today, cults and community and a million thoughts all wrapped around the moment one becomes the other. I should preface by saying I'm not even close to a cult expert. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a linguist, which will make sense later, I promise. I'm just a girl standing in front of the cave where one of America's first doomsday cults awaited the end of the world, asking it to love me. But first, let's talk community. In my freshman year of college at Utah State University, I lived in a small town called Logan, 
on the third floor of a dorm building named Snow Hall. I loved that I could come out to our main living space and always have a friend to talk to about whatever was going on. We'd make impromptu trips to get Indian takeout from this amazing place attached to a gas station. We set up traps for wayward box elder bugs. Utahns know. We made dumb rip-off SNL videos. We played catch in the hallway. When it was warm outside, we laid in the grass and planned what our night would entail after the football game. I'm guessing this type of camaraderie sounds familiar to listeners who attended college. We know what it's like to have that roommate, the one who hates everything. We know what it's like to stay up laughing until 3 a.m. We know what it's like to have people around at all times, everyone in agreement that we would live somewhat communally. I'm married now, just me and my best pal Jake, who also went to Utah State. And though we've moved to DC, we find that friends across the country are interested in returning to some sort of communal living situation. It's anecdotal, I know, but it's also interesting to me that so many different friends around my age, who come from so many different states and countries and cultures, are interested in this type of existence. I know groups of people who have actually purchased land big enough for three or four different houses, a community garden in between. I've seen new building concepts that put tiny houses around a garden and pond, tables and fire pits ready for neighbors to spend time together. All this to say that community, in a tribal sense, seems to be inherent to humans. We started out this way, groups of nomads traveling the land, hunkering down, working together to provide food and shelter. It's in our bones. But society has become increasingly separated. We blame the suburbs, transient people in big cities who don't waste time making community when they know they're leaving in a year anyway. We work in cubicles, we work from home. So we attempt to create community art groups, online chats, writer retreats, religion. It's easy to form community around something we believe in. We have a baseline. We have something we're working towards together. But sometimes these communities go rogue. People begin shaming others for not keeping all the community rules. Charismatic leaders become all commanding. People are asked to conform to beliefs or else leave. The line becomes blurred between commune and cult. Rewind to my college days and put sinister music behind scenes of me and my roommates laying in the grass. One person's crazy idea could change the outcome of the story, just like it has so many times before. Take Jonestown, for example. What started as a somewhat progressive religion, an integrated community in the 50s and 60s, People found refuge in a community led by an inclusive leader named Jim Jones. As time went on, they took Jones' displays of mind-reading and healing in stride, respecting him enough to believe it was true. That trust and respect in their leader aided in members' beliefs morphing over time, catering to their leader's paranoia, eventually leading to a mass suicide. How do we get this way? How does this all begin? And why do we stay? The story we're focusing on comes way before Jonestown. In modern America's early days, colonists brought different forms of Christianity across the Atlantic. Looking for a place where they could worship how they wanted, this freedom allowed for all sorts of religious groups and breakoffs to spring up. One of them was a society of the Women in the Wilderness, a group from Germany that settled in the Pennsylvania hillside. 
Their group name comes from a Bible chapter in the book of Revelation that tells of a woman fleeing to the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God. This group, which is actually one of America's first doomsday cults, awaited the second coming of Jesus Christ as prophesied from the book of Revelations in the Bible in a cave near Philadelphia. Melissa and I visited the cave. Well, we got lost a few times. Also, there was a fork in the road and we just went this way. There was a fork in the road? Wasn't there? Oh, I missed it. Yeah, I think maybe we just both went this way blindly. <laughs> How do we get back to where we came from? She's struggling. But she's gonna be okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We want to go towards the bridge. Okay. We've only gone point three. If they get mad at us, we're saying nothing and running away. Okay, pay attention to your feelings. <laughs> do you feel anything? creepy or culty. It's actually pretty idyllic. Yes. Back here. But then we visited the cave. Aha! We're here! Wow, that's actually terrifying. It kind of pops out at you after you walk down a little trail, mostly because a group called the Rosicrucians erected a monolithic plaque in honor of the Society of the Women in the Wilderness. The cave was bigger than we both expected, and nice and cool inside. If we're standing in the middle of Kelpius's cave, it'll take two of me to get to the other side. So it's as wide as two of Melissa's wingspan, about 11 feet across. This is very technical two. measurement, everybody. It's a good, it's a good cave. The Society of the Woman in the Wilderness was actually started in Germany when Johann Jacob Zimmermann, former Lutheran minister and professor, was disenfranchised by the church and dismissed from his academic post for his pietist and millennialist beliefs. He and a few other priests planned to leave Germany to go to America for some promised religious freedom. After studying chapter 7 in the book of Revelation, Zimmerman determined the second coming would occur in 1694. The group was ready to travel when Zimmerman died unexpectedly. Johannes Kelpius, a 21-year-old, highly educated man, took over. The group hung out in England for a while and got all buddy-buddy with the Quakers, who helped fund their journey to the U.S. The group finally made it, and they settled in Germantown, Pennsylvania, Germany's first settlement in America. From there, the group established themselves. They were devoted to a simple community, one without a lot of money, but one focused on higher concerns. They grew and made their own food together, built a tabernacle, and practiced a life of celibacy while studying astrology and alchemy. Though they lived in isolation, other nearby communities would often visit, seeking doctoral aid. All said, they knew what they believed, stuck to it, and lived peacefully on their own, praying and meditating and practicing alchemy. They kept their sights set on the stars, searching for signs of the second coming. The group stayed strong for a few years, but eventually many members left when the waiting became too much, especially after the millennium came and went. But a few monks still stayed strong, spending their days praying, meditating, and waiting. It's somewhat debated that the cave we visited had anything to do with this group. <laughs> it's become this folkloric relic, a picture of what could have been. Some say it's just an old spring house. But standing there in the darkness with this story in mind, I hoped it was real. Partly because it's a picture of a cult we don't consider very often. 
Perhaps it was more of a commune, a place where people just live together and share responsibilities. But even though that's basically what they were doing, society of the woman in the wilderness is still a cult because, by definition, they share a misplaced devotion for a person or thing. In this case, they were devoted to waiting for the end of the world. Though the society was largely harmless, I'm not suggesting we view all cults with this utopian idea in mind. Of course, not all cults are peaceful and communal. We know this. But also, not all cults are evil and corrupt. No matter what, though, if the group tries to control some aspect of you, whether that be about your faith or your body, that's when things get dicey. Ever heard that parable about boiling the frog that may or may not actually be based on reality? Put a frog straight into boiling water and it'll jump out immediately. Put it in cold water and turn up the heat and you've got a boiled frog. Cults lure people in slowly by some sort of baseline belief, even if their intentions aren't clear, even to the leaders from the very beginning. I'm Terrell and I'm a cults researcher. I've done some in-depth research into the Branch Davidians, into the Unification Church, into the Alamo Christian Foundation. I could go on. But, you know. <laughs> yeah. I talked with Terrell about why humans are drawn to this type of manufactured community. My take on it is that, um, you know, number one, depending on which group you're talking about, a lot of them really do start by targeting vulnerable people. And so that means, you know, there's, there's plenty of uh, like friend religious groups that have tried to reach out to, to runaways, to mm. unhoused people, to people with drug addiction or something like that, and offering them basically just a, an increase in their material conditions. Uh, in the beginning, when they, when they have very few members, they say, you know, you don't have a job, you don't have a place to live, we'll give you, you know, a spot on the floor, we'll give you a small cabin in, in our acreage or whatever, and in return, you gotta, you know, come to our Bible meetings, you gotta pray, you gotta believe what we say, and you gotta evangelize. And as you get more and more people inside of a, a group, it's easier to, I think, membership builds on itself. You know, when you can say you've got, when you've got nobody and you're just trying to get somebody to move to start, you know, a group with you, it's a pretty hard sell. When you've got a few hundred people living on like a few acres and stuff, that becomes more attractive. And I think that's more where the community aspect comes in. Um, you know, people are looking for, for meaning. One of the big choices you have to make in life is, you know, what do you live for? Is it yourself, your family? you know, your church, your work, you know, whatever, wherever it is you find meaning, you know, you get to choose that. But religion has the added bonus of feeling like, you know, it can give people the feeling that they've made the right choice, you know. But why do people stay after things start getting wild? If they're the frog in my analogy, why don't they feel the water heating up? Or do they, but they don't mind? Amanda Montel, author of the book Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, has a few ideas, all revolving around, you guessed it, language. Montel posits that cult leaders of cults you'd recognize, like Jim Jones or Charles Manson of the Manson family, use the same language techniques that cultish groups, like Soul Cycle or multi-level marketing schemes, might use to keep people using their service or staying in their group. The three techniques Montel comes back to throughout the book are love bombing, thought terminating cliches, and in-group, out-group thinking. To explain, love bombing is when the cult leader showers love upon you when you bring up any sort of doubt. 
We love you. We're so proud of you. We couldn't do any of this without you. Phrases like that obviously help make people feel secure, loved, like a part of something, which we know is a feeling we all crave. Thought terminating cliches are the conversation stoppers. Let's say you bring up a doubt you might have about a cult community you're in. Like, hmm, why does our leader want to marry all the women here? Someone else might reply with, it's fine, or God knows, or no need to worry, he knows what he's doing. The conversation is halted. It's obvious the other person is not willing to analyze with you, and so it's harder for you to want to analyze. And in-group, out-group thinking. Cults often tell you that you're the lucky people who have the truth. Everyone outside of the cult is dumb, knows nothing, won't get all the same rewards as you in some afterlife. Only you have the truth in this organization. Again, a way to make you feel like you're in the right place. These language tactics keep you in the group, keep you donating money, and often keep you doing things with your body or spirit that you wouldn't normally do, all for the approval of the leader and the group. And often you don't mind at all because it feels so true and the community aspect outweighs the messy stuff underneath. While language doesn't fill in the whole picture of why people stay and how cults begin, it's an important part of the story. Terrell, the cult researcher from earlier, said that the definition of a cult can get tricky. People have started using it too colloquially, as an insult for a group you might simply not agree with. We're seeing that all over the place these days, especially as the U.S. gets more political subgroups. And many groups don't even have cult-like ideas to begin with. You know, in my experience, one thing I've been struck by is how sometimes it's really just naked ambition on the part of the, the leader mixed with, um, honestly, just, just dumb luck. I, I, really, I really believe that, like, that there's a lot of people who maybe think very highly of themselves and have, are sort of live by a philosophy of, like, if I can exploit someone you know, for, for money, then that's what I should be doing. And I'd rather be doing that than like, you know, working for someone else or whatever. So I think that, you know, you get, you get a very narcissistic power hungry person and you put them with a group of vulnerable people, if they're charismatic enough, or if those people just have, you know, are in a specific situation that the cult can sort of expand from there. So until they're, uh, crimes are exposed or until they make a mistake or until they, you know, violate, like cross a line, um, they're, you know, they're just sort of by luck. It's unclear if the society of the woman in the wilderness was exploiting group members. By the accounts we've looked into, nothing super nefarious seemed to be going on, besides demanding group members celibacy and dedicating life to searching the stars for Jesus. The leaders must have been somewhat charismatic to convince people their interpretation of the Bible was correct and that they needed to move across the world to see it through. But is that inherently bad? That's where the definition of cult gets muddy. I think really the, the, the term cult is, is very loose. That I don't think of it as a scientific term. It's tricky because historically the term cult has been used to, to basically malign groups. Yeah, I wouldn't call like major religions cults, but if you get down to the nitty gritty and you really like examine certain groups that people do agree to be cults, you can compare them just like um, at a basic level to, to some major religions. And like, there are commonalities, you know, that, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think it's the problem. It's not a problem with like major religions or fringe religious groups in particular. It's a problem with the term cult. It, it, in being, it's just, um, 
you know, I think it's fine for like a normal conversation with your friends or, or generally discussing matters. But if you're really trying to like rigorously study like religious groups or, or other groups, you know, I don't think that the term cult, like it can potentially sort of occlude the truth rather than like help you. It's funny because when I talk to members of older generations about a communal society, living near my friends, just like I used to in the good old college days, they often give me strange looks. Not like a cult, I have to say. Just like people who like each other, living and working together to build a life. I have to specify that the group won't start boiling, back to the frog analogy. That we won't get caught up in weird controlling rules that create messed up hierarchical systems. But I suppose I can't promise that. Along with community, humans also have a history of taking any small amount of power and exploiting it. What would be the breaking point for one of my friends? For my husband? For me? I asked Terrell if there are examples of benevolent cults, groups that are actually healthy. Can insular communities be positive? I mean, like, yeah, I think so. Um... Can a fanatical insular community be positive? I guess it, it just depends on the person. You know, different things work for different people. Some people are at points in their lives where maybe it really is, if it's a choice between an insular community that builds them up, but also maybe has some, you know, negative aspects of their philosophy versus leaving that person sort of adrift in, in modern society, you know, maybe for them, the outcomes are better in the insular community. But um, at the same time, you know, you're going to be disagreeing with people at a certain degree. There's going to be an us versus them to a certain extent. There are definitely cults that I would call more benign, right? Like religious communities that aren't really about making money, that aren't about exploiting their members. I don't think that has to be negative. I don't think that has to be damaging to people. We're back to terminology then. If it's a community where things are socially acceptable, we wouldn't look at it and think cult. If something socially weird or unexpected is happening in a different society, we might think cult. It's a faint line. The term is messy. It's kind of a funny analogy, but like, think about like, if Casper the Friendly Ghost is living in your house, do you call your house haunted? I mean, like, you know, technically, sure, but like, that's not really what we think about when we think of haunted. And, and so um, I think there's an element, like I said, of, of denigration and, and like, in just the word cult that that's not really possible to disentangle. The label typically given to the society of the woman in the wilderness is doomsday cult. Those words evoke basically only negative connotations. If there were more research available about the society, we'd be able to tell what language they use to keep members believing. But to me, it seems more like a high demand religion, seeing as many members stayed even after they gave up on the idea of the second coming. The whole society was disbanded over time, the members off to find different communities. No big explosion, no mass suicide. And why does that feel somewhat unsatisfactory? All we have is a memory, a ruin, a relic of a place that may or may not have belonged to humans looking for purpose. And look, we can drink from the creek. Just kidding. Perfect. Might have bacteria. Shall we live out our days here? Yeah. Okay. We've got water. We saw a groundhog earlier got food only like 10 miles away <laughs> we're good there's been quite a few documentaries lately about different recent cults and cult-like societies like lula rich the story of the multi-level marketing clothing company called lula row or what about the sex cult nxivm 
And then there's a podcast called Twin Flames about an online matchmaking business. All of these are worth looking into to understand more of how people join, why they stay, and why they leave. Amanda Montel, author of Cultish, talked about how some people just have this natural skepticism, while others fall easier for the cultish community seduction. A good rule of thumb, she says, is to not dedicate your life to any one organization. Take bits and pieces of each and keep your autonomy. We need community to survive. It's a part of our species. We're social creatures, even if we're more introverted people. What we don't need is someone telling us what to do with our bodies or what to think or what to believe. And that might be where we know to draw the line. A community doesn't have to be equal to sameness. Our differences are what has inspired human ingenuity. And, well, bad stuff like colonization and slavery too. We know playing catch with a roommate in a hallway is different than hiding in a cave until the book of Revelation comes to pass. But still, both hold something we crave. I stood in front of the cave, asking it to love me, but it just confused me. Was it a safe place? Was it a dark and foreboding hole of broken promises? Or is it just not that simple? Up next, Melissa talks loneliness with author Erin Langer. I just finished season five of the reality series Alone. Is this show that tests survival skills? It takes trained men and women with survival-based experience into the Canadian wilderness right before winter, all on their own, with only a few cameras, the wildlife, and weekly med checks as forms of companionship. The last to remain wins. Participants may leave because of injury, Maybe other medical complications, heart palpitations, food poisoning from bad beaver meat. Maybe they are pulled because they've lost too much weight and there are concerns for their long-term health. Or maybe they leave because they are lonely. Hey guys. Turns out I'm pretty sick of hanging out with myself. And I'm pretty lonely. It, it gets to you after a while. It just, the quiet of not sharing the experience, it just kind of eats away at you. It was a rainy day that broke Brooke in season five. And today I stare at the rain pouring down from the clogged gutters outside my office window, realizing I have yet to talk to another human today. I asked my dog if he wanted to go for a walk, but it was hardly a conversation. In the recent season nine of the show alone, one contestant confesses that there is a heavier loneliness than isolation in Canadian forests. I was thinking about if I would feel alone out here, you know? I've felt more alone in my life. I was homeless. I was living out of my van and it was such a stressful time in my life. It was my last year of medical school and deep down I was just 
incredibly unhappy and sad. Financially, uh, in my relationships, emotionally, I, I just hit rock bottom. But I never asked my parents for help. I didn't want her to worry about me. So I decided to do it by myself. But to go through something like that and to put on a smile and to portray that everything's okay, I don't think I could feel more alone than when I did in, the, in those few months. So being out here, I don't think I'll be, I don't, I don't think I'll feel that alone. Loneliness is different from being alone. Alone implies isolation, physical separation from others, which indeed can cause loneliness. Olivia Lang writes in her book, The Lonely City, Adventures in the Art of Being Alone, that mortality is lonely. Physical existence is lonely by its nature, stuck in a body that's moving inexorably towards decay, shrinking, wastage, and fracture. But it is more than that. It is not just being stuck in a separate mortal coil, but also feeling as if others don't get you, don't accept you, don't even see you, even when you are surrounded by millions of others. In Kristen Radke's graphic nonfiction investigation into the topic titled Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness, she writes that loneliness isn't necessarily tied to whether you have a partner or a best friend or an aspirationally active social life in which you're laughing all the time. It's a variance that rests in the space between relationships you have and relationships you want. Loneliness, she says, lives in the gap. Sometimes I think my gap is a product of mental and social needs I can't even express. It's like I long for someone to just know my brain without me having to put in any effort. Someone who nods along with my unsaid thoughts and my complicated emotions just to say, yep, I get it. The rain unceasing outside and my dog now snoring. I turned my attention to YouTube footage of Fausta, the world's oldest black rhino, walking by herself along the fence of her sanctuary before she passed away two years ago. On another tab, I scroll through the silk screens of Andy Warhol's Endangered Species series. Colorful in his pop art way, the African elephant printed in purple, outlined in sketchy lime and cobalt. And Warhol's black rhino, struggles to stand in his portrait, as if injured or ancient. With only 2,000, maybe only three left of your species in the world, is this then the ultimate form of isolation? Lang's book focuses on artists who've swirled in and out of the lonely city, as well as the motivating and debilitating waters of loneliness. In one section, she analyzes the details of Edward Hopper's Nighthawks, its bubble of glass likened to an inescapable fish tank. The creatures inside not talking, not even looking at each other, in their refuge for the isolated. She speaks of the ups and downs of Andy Warhol, his life story touched by the loneliness of difference and self-doubt and understanding. Lang also writes about how loneliness is difficult to confess. In a book that serves as a confession of her own loneliness during the time she lived in New York City in her mid-30s as well as how loneliness, especially that deeper inner loneliness 
that Virginia Woolf names in her diary in 1929 can be transformative, enlightening, a way towards an otherwise unreasonable experience of reality. And this definition of loneliness leads me to a third female writer, maybe fourth if you count Wolf here, and who wouldn't, right? In her debut essay collection, Souvenirs from Paradise, forthcoming this year from Zone 3 Press, Erin Langner writes about another big city and how loneliness can even invade the manufactured celebratory atmosphere of Las Vegas. It's not like a, an obvious thing to say about Las Vegas, but there, it is really most of the time a communal experience, but that's what people are doing there. They're going to bachelor parties, they're going to a conference, they're going to a wedding. I ended up traveling there quite a bit by myself and I, I, I didn't know at the time that that was the reason, but I think the reason is because I was really connecting some of those experiences to the process of, of grief, which for me was a, a very lonely experience and I think can be for a lot of people, even though like my family was going through the grief of the loss of my mother when I was when I was nine. You know, the book really started in my mind when I brought together two experiences that I had, the experience I had the first time I went to Las Vegas staying at the Mirage Hotel and the experience I had um, when I was young and we stayed at a hotel that ultimately I realized is quite similar in being there and have, having this kind of baggage and this loneliness of, of grief made it kind of even more uh, amplified when I thought about it and realized even though I was distracted in the moment, but then why did those moments stay with me it became much more of a kind of connecting with that, that loneliness helped me to see them a lot better. Aaron opens the collection at the Mirage. It's grand chaser light lined thatch roof entrance. It's girls in slinky halter dresses and slim stilettos. It's swarms of taxis and limos. It's mechanized volcano erupting over the casino's front lawn to a soundtrack of drums and thunder. She tells the history of the Mirage, of owner Steve Wynn's escapist addiction in creating even more spectacles, Treasure Island, the Bellagio, the Wynn Casino, she likens his drive to repetition compulsion, the tendency to repeat past trauma or its surrounding circumstances to find comfort in the familiar. Returning to something we know, she writes, outweighs the cost of destruction. When the loss of her mother left Aaron grieving and feeling alone in that grief, no classmates to connect to what she was going through, her father buttoned up on the matter, Aaron became obsessed with the thrill ride roller coasters, haunted houses, anything fast or dark, to allow herself to return to something she knew, outweighing the cost of its possible destruction. The thrill ride is another kind of gap, this in-between zone, Erin explains, one that is like a controlled environment, but one in which fear still arises as the body is taken on a course outside of its own control. The emotional response of that roller coaster is akin to what happens when we feel the sensation of disconnection. Kristen Radke explains there is an evolutionary trigger at the base of attachment theory, because throughout most points of human history, it was dangerous to be alone. So we feel this discomforting twinge designed to pull us back into our communities and tribes. 
It's a stress response that pumps hormones throughout our bodies and blood into our hearts. Psychiatrists Olds and Schwartz, she writes, call it the biologically determined terror of detachment. And I think when it comes to grief in particular, and especially like here in the United States, because there's so many different ways that people grieve. And the more I've learned, the more I'm like, wow, you know, there are, there are very different ways to do this. And to even just, you know, going to New Orleans and seeing like a jazz funeral versus like the funerals I attended, you know, in suburban Chicago were just, you know, completely different. I remember being moved the first time I saw a jazz funeral in New Orleans by the sense of community and togetherness and celebration that comes out of those traditions. If grief were a little more normalized and, and sadness were a little more normalized in my my community and my family um, growing up, I per, it perhaps would not have been quite so isolated, but everyone I saw around me was kind of, you know, going back to normal and kind of societal push in our experiences to kind of like move forward. And I think that made it a little more lonely. Also just being, you know, somewhere like the suburbs where there was this other narrative going on that, you know, things are nice in the suburbs and, you know, people don't have problems. And obviously everyone did have problems, but they weren't being talked about. And so I think if that kind of manufactured landscape um, made it extra difficult and extra lonely. These narratives of who we are, who we are supposed to be, who we are in certain situations, they mimic our world of what is and what is manufactured. Erin Langner is another art enthusiast like Olivia Lang. Erin writes about art, architecture, and identity. She earned her master's in museology from the University of Washington and her bachelor's in humanities from the University of Colorado. She currently lives in Seattle with her husband and daughter and works on exhibitions and publications at the Fry Art Museum. And when she travels to Vegas, she doesn't only lounge by the pools, but takes in the art as well. In her essay, The Museum Attraction from the Collection, Erin tells of visiting an exhibition about the Titanic, in which participants are prescribed a fate, live or die. So to role play their possible victimhood status as if they are among the ship's manifest. In connection, she mentions the 2019 exhibit titled Edward Hopper and the American Hotel, for which visitors spent the night inside a room at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts that was made to look like one of the lonely hotel rooms the painter so often portrayed. Erin ponders if this is a way, this role-playing, this group experience, to verify individual feelings as possibly not that individual after all. An experience can be authentic or it can be inauthentic, but it's not necessarily going to be dictated by the circumstances. It's going to be dictated by how you're willing, how deeply you're willing to engage with it and, you know, bring meaning to what you're doing. People go to Europe to have all these you know, meaningful life experiences, but I, I truly think you can have a meaningful life experience on the Las Vegas Strip just as easily as you can have a terrible, meaningless, <laughs> <laughs> drunken, <laughs> forgettable experience on the Las Vegas Strip. And it's just about understanding like why you're there and the people you're there with and what you're looking for.
None of the women I have included in this discussion of loneliness offers a magic bullet cure for it. Sorry. Olivia Lang says there is no magic bullet. It's not as easy as get married and you will never feel lonely again. It's not just needing a voice on the other end of a call or 2,000 followers on the other end of a tweet. It may require much more emotional and social effort, more reflection, and even, like we propose in this podcast, traveling outside what is normal so to see yourself better when you are back home. Maybe leave the cult to understand the cult to better understand yourself. Virginia Woolf said that loneliness is the feeling of singing of the real world as one is driven by loneliness and silence from the habitable world. It is the feeling that connections with society, with causes, with other people are paper thin, built on facade. That there is some realness inside of me that is so weird, (laughs) so singular, that it can't be mirrored by anyone else or understood by them either. But maybe, just maybe, we can even come to see ourselves in mirages, in the manufactured. I bring up Paris in our discussion. Aaron Langner counters by sharing details about Las Vegas's Eiffel Tower. Yeah, I, and I, it's funny, the first time I went to Paris, I was um, studying abroad in college, and I was just like, I'm not going to any major tourist thing. Like, I will not see the Eiffel Tower. Um, and then I ended up going back, you know, 10 years later or something. And I was like, okay, I, I happen to be like nearby. And I, I, you know, I kind of softened. It is a really important historical landmark. Um, and I would, I'm right here, so I, I might as well go see it. So I went to see it and I was like, oh, this is, this is like really beautiful. And I was really like, you know, there is an earnest, like, incredible quality to it and I also like find that in the Vegas Eiffel Tower I read it's like an exact like one third scale replica it is a really beautiful thing to see a lot of people who go to Vegas probably will not see the real works and there is something they're having a real experience of their own Um, and so I, I appreciate the earnestness and the authenticity of those experiences if we think instead of our place within a group. Against the idea of recognizing oneself within a tower or arch or lonely room or Las Vegas itself, then mirroring becomes a form of survival, not as much reflection. Kristen Radke writes that maintaining our position within a group, which is to say fed and warm and less likely to be cornered by bears without backup or left off the coworker text chain arranging 5 p.m. drinks, we need to feel deeply troubled when we observe minor social shuns so we can correct our behavior. There is a reason, she writes, that short of execution, banishment was the harshest punishment a king could bestow. We fear loneliness because loneliness kills. And not just by bear attacks either. Radke includes studies within CQ that demonstrate the link between being chronically lonely and every high prevalence killer in contemporary epidemiology. Those who are lonely are more likely to smoke cigarettes, more likely to be physically inactive, more likely to suffer from high blood pressure, alcoholism, weakened immune systems, 
and insomnia. Ailments and behaviors not so much linked to how much time we spend alone, but how we feel about being alone. It's the shame of it. The feeling like it's a marker of our otherness, that we are some sort of loser, an outsider, no good, not worth anyone's time. Well, and I do think, you know, the manufactured landscape of Las Vegas is a great mirror because there's a lot of freedom to make decisions in a way that you probably wouldn't anywhere else. But the interesting question then is, you know, it's actually like, look in the mirror, (laughs) just like, you know, run out the door um, and see like, why did I make the decisions I did? Um, And what does it mean about me? What does that say about me? What am I, what is, even if it is like, you know, I'm getting, I'm putting on this persona, but ultimately I do think that persona says a lot about us um, when we're willing to like really dig into it and understand it and confront, struck the persona that we do. At the end of The Lonely City, Olivia Lang claims that the opposite of loneliness is about two things. Coming to befriend oneself and recognizing that the world is full of collective exclusion and loneliness and that our personal afflictions rest within those greater forces rather than our own shame. In Souvenirs from Paradise, Aaron Langner proves that alongside collective exclusion, there is also its collective opposite collective inclusion, I suppose. She writes of attending a Michael Jackson fan festival, a Britney Spears concert, an interactive mobster exhibit. We have this desire to belong, she explains, that can collide with romanticization and the destruction of the truth. At a bachelorette party, we think we should act a certain way, experience a certain experience out of that romanticism. We might put on a mask, we might hide the truth, we might over-idealize mobsters to experience something cool. We think the great big normal is the group. And while biologically we are drawn to our tribes, sometimes we might have to question how much of that tribalism represents real connection and how much is just manufactured. Erin thinks of her daughter. Las Vegas as this manufactured landscape. It's a kind of manufactured emotional landscape that we live in. Um, So there's this idea that, you know, I think especially when we're young, um, and it's certainly something I struggle with as a a parent, because I have a four-year-old, you know, what do I want to be really transparent about and what do I want to like hold back or shape in some way for my daughter's experience of the world? What we hold back, what we share, how we build walls to protect ourselves or reach out to find some sort of group that will have us. Even though I'd say I'm not much for social media, in moments of feeling lonely, I find myself mindlessly scrolling Instagram for the sake of seeing, binging on television, scrolling through products without buying anything, opening a collection of tabs, each leading to another until I walk away, not sure of why I opened my laptop in the first place. It feels like it consumes me as I consume it. Caught within similar habits, Lang calls herself an absent, ardent witness to the world. 
And such witnessing feels risk-free, easier than the work of art, of self-investigation. Even when I talk to my husband, asking that we turn off the TV to eliminate the distraction, I immediately think to just suggest another movie, another manufactured landscape. Kristen Radke was inspired to craft her graphic nonfiction about loneliness because of a tale of her father. She learned he was once an amateur radio operator, one who would call out across the frequencies a series of punctuated monotone beeps known as the CQ call. Sounds like seek you, right? Exactly. These CQ calls came to represent attempts to make connections across the wavelengths. She ends her book with sharing her desire to use loneliness like an amateur radio, to find our way back to each other, so that when we call out across the airwave, or telephone, or a chat room, or an open field, or our bedroom, she writes, I want us each to hear, miraculously, a voice calling back. Outside my window, the rain has stopped. The sky glares a bright white with what is left of its cloud coverage. Inside, at my feet, my dog whines for attention. Still, on my computer, I can't help myself. I open another tab. I search for a Pittsburgh Airbnb, one near Sandusky Street. We invite you to pop back in, the Andy Warhol Museum's website says. Since art should affect your being, and not your well-being. Or maybe both? I don't book the rental, but I search for an hour, imagining the balm of travel, imagining another landscape, wondering what it is I could do with it, imagining the mirrors within Warhol's work, imagining grabbing lunch with an old college buddy afterwards, imagining connection, reflection, some sort of good gap that isn't necessarily together, but isn't necessarily alone either. Thanks for listening. And we owe a huge thank you to all the people who let us interview them for this episode. To Terrell for talking about the nuances of cults and Erin Langner for sharing more about her newest essay collection, Souvenirs from Paradise, coming soon. And a thank you to the source material we use for research and background for this episode. To Amanda Montel for her work in the book Cultish, to the many websites and folklore accounts of the Cave of Kelpius. To Olivia Lang and all she gives us through her book, The Lonely City, Adventures in the Art of Being Alone, and to Kristen Radke and her graphic nonfiction, Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness. And to all the contestants on Alone for sharing their experience out in the Canadian wilderness all by themselves. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Melissa Wade, and Abby Newhouse. All sound effects and music not recorded by us come from Epidemic Sound. Learn more about this episode at our website, we'reherepodcast.com, at our Instagram, at we'rehere.podcast, or on Twitter, at we underscore re here. Until next time.
we're here. 